Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the Managing Director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. It's my great pleasure to introduce uh, to this latest episode of Edge somebody who's been uh, the part owner of the world's best racehorse, um, Winks, um, somebody who has uh, developed a over a long term uh, a great business career, a distinguished business career in the fruit and vegetable industry, and somebody who's uh, very generous and a friend to many, both in the racing industry and generally, and somebody uh, that I first got to know when uh, trying to earn a dollar around the Rockley Trots at uh, in Brisbane as a betting steward. So those things might be mutually exclusive, but it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, a wonderful person in, in Peter Ty. Welcome, Peter. Yeah, thanks very much, Stephen. Peter, growing up in uh, Brisbane and uh, with a dad uh, who was uh, in the markets, um, a key figure in the markets, a key figure at um, the Halcyon Track or the Rockley Trots, um, those days I fondly remember. What are your memories of growing up with your dad in that family situation and uh, obviously the, the trotting and uh, gambling industries? What's your reflection about your, your childhood and growing up? Oh, I remember it was a very simple existence. Uh, my father loved his job at the markets. He loved having a bet and he loved following the football. So in those days it was a pretty regular routine. of He'd work hard all week. He'd go to Rockley Trots uh, on Saturday afternoon and on Sundays he'd listen to his beloved Fortitude Valley's football club. We had a good life. I enjoyed my childhood. Uh, we, we didn't do a hell of a lot spectacularly, but, you know, it was, a, it was like I say, a simple living, but it was a good grounding for, for us and our family and my two sisters later in life. And um, we, we look back now and, and we can certainly thank him for what he, uh, the track that he, he set us on and, uh, the guidelines that he gave us to follow. Your mum's still alive, as we've talked about, together that, that unity. What are those values that live on to today? What are the gifts those two wonderful people have given you and your sisters, do you think? Oh, we live by the older times. We live by a lot of values, as, you know, as, as people say today. And the harder you work, the luckier you get. Never look backwards, you only get a sore neck. I mean, I, <laughs> I, remember, I remember all of those from my younger days and as much as they... A silly little synonyms. It, it was it was born on hard work. We we worked hard at the fruit markets. I remember going to school, and I was never brilliant at school. I can assure you of that. But I used to love the holidays where I'd get to go to the markets. It was a big part of our life. We worked, um, or Dad had worked Saturdays and Sundays when he had to, and we'd all pile in. Myself, my mother, my two sisters, and it could be weekends at the markets, uh, sorting through. Uh, rotten fruit or it could be shifting uh, boxes or doing something but yeah I loved every minute of it I mean it was a, it was a great upbringing and um, just set us um, good values 
that they gave us of, of hard work and being honest. And I think the rest of it just comes pretty naturally. Certainly my observation today and, and many other people would describe you uh, very much in, in uh, those words, and we'll get to that in a moment, but just take me into the colourful characters of the markets. There must have been, uh, after years spent there, some colourful characters that, you know, made the, uh, made the markets what they were in terms of very, very uh, bullish environment, very busy environment. So any reflections about the, the people you've met? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was, and still is today, probably not so much, but it was 100% character. It was a great place. Uh, I remember fellas working there, the ilk of Tommy Radonikus. He, he had a, a career in the market selling tomatoes. There was a, a number of jockeys. If they were suspended or they weren't riding, would work casually at the markets, but it was pretty bread and butter stuff. Everybody liked to have a bet, be it on the greyhounds, the trots or the races, and several of the company owners owned horses. And, um, yeah, there was a following of the staff and the workers out there. So, yeah, no, that was in the day-to-day ritual of going to work. was, you know, finding out about who's going to be the next good thing to bet on and whose horse was running well or dog was running well. So um, I didn't have much chance of getting away from it, but I did. I did love it. So the, the markets has had probably too many characters to mention and it's funny, but I, I think everybody, you know, everywhere knows someone who's worked at the fruit markets, be it in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide or Perth. And, uh, you know, there's been some great friendships, you know, for many, many years, you know, come from that place and still live on today. And, I've, you know, a lot of, a lot of the older fellows have passed on probably taught me as well as my father taught me the ropes of how business is, is done and, and the correct way to do it. And uh, it stood me in good stead very much for late in life. We talked previously about when you left school, you headed to the Commonwealth Bank and uh, worked in banking for a couple of years. And uh, when the opportunity presented uh, into uh, the markets, uh, J.H. Levy and, uh, and there for a, a wonderful career. So... The attraction of the markets, uh, what attracted you to work there? Oh, it's a, it's a bustling empire of mixed people, mixed values, mixed uh, nationalities, mixes of everything. If it's just, and it did all goes at 100 mile an hour. We, we start early in the morning. Um, markets are fluctuating throughout the, throughout the morning. You know, we used to start back then at, say, 6 o'clock in the morning when the market opened and, prices would fluctuate up and down over the course of the next two or three hours. So you had to be a sharp operator to get the best out of the business and get the best price for your farmers and get the best returns for yourself. So, yeah, no, it, it, it was an existence of, um, well, very much like a stock market, um, but in a fresh fruit and vegetable trading environment where you, you have to keep selling the product. It doesn't last for a long time and it has to be moved on. So you had to, you had to be thinking on your feet and you had to be trading and, and interacting with a lot of people. And, uh, and not only in Brisbane, but we, you know, we interacted with people in all of the main markets, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Adelaide, Perth, and we traded with, with people in all the markets. And um, we, we spent a lot of time on the phone back in those days. It was all telephones. Um, there was no fancy video calls or anything like that. So uh, a lot of work was done on the phone, working with people everywhere. Yeah, and I guess uh, when you look at your background and all the things converging, you know, markets and uh, horse racing and bits and pieces and being able to uh, pick things, pick markets, 
You know, you started in uh, so-called racing with uh, 20 greyhounds and from greyhounds uh, retired and then you had an incidental conversation, I understand, with uh, somebody about a racehorse or sharing a racehorse at a Broncos game. Is that true? Or? That's exactly true. The, the gentleman's name was a he was an ex-farmer from Stanthorpe in Queensland and then he moved from Stanthorpe to Brisbane where he ran several fruit shops, big fruit outlets. His name was Ivio Betelago. And uh, I hadn't seen him for a few years. We bumped into each other at a Broncos game when they used to play at ANZ Stadium out at Mount Cravatway. We just got talking and he said that he'd uh, bred a horse and, you know, he was racing it with a couple of friends and uh, the conversation said, oh, if you'd like to buy a share, let me know. And uh, he had been ultimately successful in everything he touched and, I couldn't get home quick enough to tell my wife that I bumped into Vivio. He'd offered us a share in a horse, and if any horse was going to win a, a big race like a Melbourne Cup, it'd be one of Vivio's because he was such a lucky bugger. So I couldn't get there quick enough. So we bought a, I think we bought a fifty percent share in the horse, um, and it was all of about eight thousand dollars. It wasn't going to break us one way or another, but we we gave it a go, and we've never looked back from that day forward. So Franciscan Magic uh, is the birthright of Magic Bloodstock. Is that true? Exactly. Yeah. No, that was the name of the first horse, Franciscan Magic. We we had some success, and we 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 didn't have a company at that stage, but we had visions of of racing horses and calling them all something magic, and and we had a company, and then we'd syndicate, and we had great visions of what we were going to do, and not too much of it eventuated. Only the fact that we got a company called Magic Bloodstock which we were going to use as a vehicle going forward. But it, to this day, it's still only me and Patty as the directors of Magic Bloodstock. We don't have any partners and uh, we race all of our horses, whatever percentage we own, it's raced as Magic Bloodstock Racing Syndicate. And the syndicate consists of myself and Patty and whatever we buy and share in a horse, that's just the two of us and, and all the other owners. Yeah, wonderful piece. I mean, I, I do finally remember the Make My Magic with Alan Bailey and um, a tragedy beat, one would suspect, in uh, one of the Brisbane's and Queensland big races, but uh, certainly a grey horse by Canadian Silver. Absolutely. He was uh, he was one we bought after our Franciscan Magic had gone round and, and, and won a few races and given us a few dollars and we reinvested and we bought Franciscan Magic. We had another one called Where's the Magic? Uh, she won three races. So we were, we were lucky. We were buying probably horses at the cheaper end of the scale, which were returning us certainly not a fortune, but enough to you know keep our interest up and give us a bit of spending money to buy. And we were blessed early with Make Mine Magic. He he was a just slightly short of a million dollar prize money earner over a six year period. So he fueled us in a big way and. My wife, Patty, got involved with racing and she loves the social side of it and, and, and she's always been a, a girl who likes to drink and uh, socialise with the girls and get dressed up and, you know, it fitted, it fitted really well because we were, we were really enjoying our racing because it was a, we did work hard during the week, the both of us, and, and it was a bit of an out for us on a Saturday to go to the races with the likes of Alan Bailey and his wife, June, and enjoy a, a nice social afternoon out whether we had horses running or not. Yeah, um, a great partnership. And we'll talk about the partnership with um, obviously Magic Bloodstock and uh, etc. But the personal partnership with your wonderful wife, Patty, and uh, it's pretty close to home indirectly because uh, 
my partner's from Wangaratta as well. So it's a great, great grounding. Uh, you've got some great stock there, Peter. Uh, plenty of good people have come out of Wangaratta, as my wife has told me many, many times. We've been to Wangaratta. We, we conducted business in Wangaratta in the fruit and vegetable business. We had a big client there at Wangaratta. So we used to venture down there oh, quite a few years ago now and, she, she came a couple of times and we'd go around and have a look where her old house was. Patty was a, she was a six children in her family. So she, she was from a big family and they all started down in Wangaratta and now they've spread their wings all over the place. The partnership with the resources, um, obviously a life partner with Patty, but uh, this um, partnership with key people and uh, preeminently um, we come to Winks and, um, 43 starts, 37 wins, three seconds, uh, 33 consecutive wins. Uh, the accolades are amazing. What's your reflection now that she's into breeding and the next phase of her, her life? How did you feel going through all of that wonderful experience? Well, reflecting now, it's, it's getting close to two years since she's retired. So it seems a long time in that two years, but the, the four to five years that we raced her for was just a whirlwind. It, it was like we were standing outside watching everything unfold in a, in, in a story. But it happened so fast and continuous and that there wasn't a moment really to draw your breath because she'd race and then she'd spell and we were just as busy when she spelled as when she raced because there were there were commitments growing and, and growing and growing with reference to uh, media and stories and then, you know, there was books came along and, so we just had a dream run. There was nothing bad about it. I don't think there was anything that I could say that, you know, I wouldn't do it all over again. There was no standout point that we, we didn't enjoy any part of it. It just got better and better. And, well, we don't consider ourselves, you know, anything special, but we had to learn how to, how to cope with the people, the media, uh, the interest in the horse, um, and because... Because Winx can't speak, we had to do a lot of speaking for her and represent her at a lot of things. And we we took that task wonderfully well and, and enjoyed it and tried to enjoy it with everyone else so they could enjoy it as well. It was it was it was no good trying to um, oh I don't know being a one-upmanship on it. Just as we we're getting as many people involved in racing and and, and the story of Winx was was just a highlight of the whole journey. Yeah, I can remember making my way to Sydney just to watch uh, the initial running of Wink's Stakes at uh, Randwick and uh, just to fly to a race meeting just to see the races. Uh, I scratched myself like I hadn't seen uh, many races beforehand, but that was just a superb day at uh, Randwick. Sadly, um, one of the owners, Richard, uh, has passed away uh, recently and um, He's part of the, the partnership. So uh, you reflect on Richard and he um, named Winks, did he not? Well, Richard was a, was a client of Alan Bailey's back in the day, well, some 10 or 15 years ago, and uh, we, we didn't know him, but he, he had shares with horses and we bought a, we'd bought a horse at the sale back in that day, uh, Patty and I, and we paid more $80,000 for it. We were happy to buy it, but I said to Alan Bailey, we, we can't afford to race the whole thing ourselves. And Alan said, oh, I've got a gentleman here. He's, he likes to race a few. He's really good. He said he's a good payer, enjoys his racing. I'll put him in touch here. He'd probably take a half share. And so it became the story of Magic Bloodstock and Richard Shawik. And we owned oh, several horses 
and I can't remember how many, but I do remember that every horse we owned with Richard won a race. We never had a horse that didn't win a race. Um, the last horse we bought was Winks together, but we, we owned a horse called High Rolling Woman that ran third in a Magic Millions two-year-old. Uh, gave us Very a great common. thrill. Uh, we raced a horse called Champagne Cath, who was at one stage early in the two-year-old season favourite for the Golden Slipper. So we, we, we were getting a, a good schooling as we went along before we got Winks. But, you know, he was a great, he was a great fellow, Richard. He, he loved his racing and, and it all happened, well, I wouldn't say too late in his life, but later in his life when, you know, he didn't get to the track to see Winks. I don't think he went to any of the Cox Plates and more um, just through ill health that he, um, that he didn't get along to the races. But yeah, he was a great partner and, and we had a lot of fun. And then he... After Winks, you know, we, we, it was the last horse that we bought as a group and Debbie went off and did her thing and Richard decided to breed some of his own and I don't I haven't been big in the breeding, so we just thought we'll just keep buying and go into some different syndicates. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a good um, – it, it was a good story with Richard and, and it was like befitting. He passed away about a week ago from today and it was the day after they unveiled the Winks statue at Rose Hill. And uh, his daughter was there representing him, as she did in the last two or three years of his life. And uh, the statue was unveiled. It was like the culmination of the entire racing life of Winks. And then the day after, he sadly passed away. And I, I believe it was it was suddenly in his probably in his sleep, but um, it was unexpected. He wasn't in in a position where they thought he would pass on, but it just happened uh, the way it did. But um, he was ninety. He, I think he had a a good run and he certainly, you know, he's enshrined in the legend of Winks and uh, he'll go down as a, a part owner of the greatest horse that's ever raced. As you and uh, Will and uh, and Paddy and uh, along with Debbie Captus and Debbie, uh, as many people know, has a, has a strong racing lineage. Uh, for those who wouldn't know, there would be only a few. How, does, how did that connection uh, with uh, Debbie uh, come about? Uh, again, it, um, it all came through racing. We, we didn't know them particularly or didn't know them at all. And trainer in Sydney, ex-top jockey Kevin Moses and his wife bought a horse, decided to syndicate it, oh, must be some 15 years ago, for women only. And this um, group of women who, you know, ended up being all high rollers. There was uh, Kevin's wife, Jenny, uh, Kim Beadman, Darren Beadman's wife, uh, Debbie Capetus, uh, Max Whitby's wife. Oh, look, there was there was ten women, you know, and they all signed up and bought a share, but none of them had really met anybody. It was a, just through a few people. So we met Debbie and her family, including a father and mother, at uh, Crown Casino in Melbourne. We were down there for the Melbourne Cup Carnival. Oh, must have been back around about two thousand, two thousand and two or three, and um, yeah, that's how it all started. Just the love of racing, and and um, what happens with most racing people, you meet someone who's um, got the same ideas you have, and um, next thing you know, you're buying a horse together. Beyond winks, I don't know where anybody could actually uh, achieve what uh, buying the absolute pinnacle in my terms. Um, a great um, advert for Australian racing and um, the whole nation, I think. Uh, we had Black Caviar, then we were lucky to have Winks. Who knows the next one? And you've had a few other ones that perhaps live in the shadow, but uh, 
perhaps you might be a little bit rigid like because you've had procurement um, horses like that another dollar I think so you've had some reasonable horses as well you know it's it's our first group one winner was a horse called preferment which won the VRC Derby as a maiden and until you win a race like that you really can't explain what it's like we've raced horses for 20 years we wished we could win a group one we held our breath a few times when we got close but until you actually win one, you don't realise what it's like. And when Preferment had won uh, the VAC Derby, well, for me, that was probably like my racing life complete. We thought it was good. The, uh, he, he came along and, and put us on a, on a great pedestal for racing. And um, within months, Winks was on the scene. And poor old Preferment, we love him to death, but he got faded out. He, he was a winner of four Group 1 races. He won over... I think two and a half million dollars in prize money, and he now stands at stud in New Zealand. You know, he he would have been a pin-up horse for anyone in their whole lifetime, let alone have him. And then we had another mare, Philly mare called Unforgotten, who won the AJC Oaks in Sydney. And you know, she was a she won one Group One race, but you know went on to win several stakes and, and listed races and Group races. And she was an absolute peach to have as well. And we had you know, horses of that ilk running around. So there's a few of them that, you know, probably got swept under the mat along the way, but we love them just as much. But poor old Winks got all of the front page news and, and that was all they wanted to know about. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's good to look back. And, we, you know, I've got videos and of, of all the horses that we've had and it's, it's lovely to look back on all of them, you know, over many years to reminisce of what it was like <laughs> going to the races with, you know, $2 in your pocket and, you know, really really wishing that your horse wins so you can get some money and, and um, yeah, you know, have, have a bit of a, a night out. So um, yeah, it's gone from very humble beginnings to um, uh, a position that you just couldn't imagine or dream of. Yeah, Peter, you were never tempted or the team weren't tempted to take Winks overseas. I know there was a lot of discussion about that and not taking Winks overseas. And uh, was that an easy decision or something you... Well, you know, to be honest, we were probably definitely going because the people from England had come to Australia and courted us very well. And, you know, there were suggestions of, you know, coming to England, meet the Queen, um, you know, all the fancy stuff. And believe you me, it sounded really good. thinking, oh, how good would that be to go over there? And then we thought, oh, yeah, that'd be good. And, and, and you know, Debbie you know, had her thoughts and Richard had his thoughts. And we, we had lunch one day in Sydney, Chris Wallace, who we need to get together and it was... Chris Waller, Hugh Bowman, me and Patty, Debbie and Richie. And um, Chris discussed what the effect a trip like that would have on the horse. And it also meant that we couldn't go for the third Cox Plate. Um, there were certain disadvantages for doing it. And um, look, after uh, each of us discussing why we wanted to go and why we didn't want to go, it became plainly obvious that the best interests of Winks and the best interest of Winx's fans were to keep her in Australia and try and win at that stage a third Cox Plate, which equal the Great Kingston Town. You know, it didn't mean anything money-wise or anything like that or prestige to go overseas. There was nothing they could offer us that we couldn't have here. And if we took her over there and something went wrong, um, we would have been the scourge of the nation. So it became a very, very simple, very simple decision in the end where in, in a probably half an hour discussion, we were all prepared to make sure that Winx was looked after first and foremost and it wasn't in her interest to go overseas. 
And, um, yeah, we enjoyed that lunch great that day because we were all on the same page. Um, we all knew well in advance of everyone else. So we were, we were courted for the probably next three months, you know, people still wanting us to go overseas. And we, we had invitations to go to America, to Hong Kong, to England, to Ireland. I mean, it was just incredible. Japan wanted us to go. They were, they were just some of the ones, that, you know, were trying to get us to take them wherever. And if we weren't going to go to England, we weren't going to go anywhere. So we made that decision and we stood by it. And as I say, in the interest of Australian racing and the Australian racing public who, you know, to this day, love her to death. Absolutely. Um, she uh, absolutely raised the spirit of a nation and uh, in my own little minor way. I mean, um, you know, I can remember cheering in the lounge room and getting really nervous and I'm thinking, how would Peter Ty feel? What a magnificent story. $26 million, 33 consecutive races. I guess it wasn't in the end about money, but... Uh, what a great um, focus on the needs of the horse and needs of other people. You're a leader broadly uh, everywhere, Peter, in racing and in your own uh, industry. If you were to talk to other leaders like we are potentially, what would you tell them, not tell them, knowing you? What, what would you, uh, what's your advice about leading other people and being a, a leader? You know, I, I like to keep things pretty simple, Stephen. I wouldn't call myself a great motivator. Speaking wise, but I think if your your actions are fair, then can, you can motivate people by your actions and what you do more than what you say. So I'm, I'm a firm believer of, of of testing the waters, of doing doing things and experiencing things, so you can pass that on. And I think if you speak with knowledge that you've you've done something, I'm not a big fan of people that how can you say they haven't experience things they learn they learn a lot out of um, out of books so I'm more of a practical hands-on where I'm past I'm too old to be a worker but in my own business there was no job that I asked anybody to do that I hadn't previously done and my father was the one that you know made sure of that I, I did every stinking rotten little job uh, to start with and when I could manage those I'd move to the next level and the next level and the next level and you know many years later and you know, when I had, you know, we had a staff of 30 or 40 people in our business at one stage and, you know, I could honestly hold my head up and say no one in this business is asked to do anything that I haven't done. And, uh, you know, I, I've had staff for 20, 30, 35 years working for me that, you know, whatever, whatever we were doing, we thought we were doing the right thing. So I, I just think if you're fair dinkum and honest with people and you can look them in the eye and, and, and you know, speak about what you really mean or what you feel and if it if it comes from the heart and soul well it, it goes over a hell of a lot better than if, if you're just a, um, a hypothetical type person your uh, genuineness your authenticity your uh, humility shines through your commitment to excellence and precision uh, you don't waste um, much word language and you're a doer um so in doing what what's next um as an achiever that you are, Peter, what's next for Peter Tyne? Well, we, we've built our horse stock up. We, you know, we race. We don't own all of them, so we own shares in about 60 horses. And we're breeding a few. We've bred a few in New Zealand, like half a dozen. We'll look after Winks and see what happens to her with breeding. I'm still involved with the Brisbane Markets at Rockley. I'm on the board of Brisbane Markets Limited. I've luckily and happily been on that for nearly 20 years now, and, it's, it's a company that's, that's grown from a, 
a $70 million company to over, well over $400 million in the time that I've been on the board. So I get great satisfaction in seeing it succeed. Um, and I've got to dabble in a bit of um, a bit of building. You know, Patty and I, we're building a house and a few townhouses. I mean, like just, I'm at a stage now where I want to do what I want to do, if that's the right way of saying it. And the, the, the more I enjoy it, the better it is. I you know, put my heart and soul into whatever I like to do. So, you know, we're in the, probably the twilight of our working life. We'll never be doing nothing, I can assure you of that. But, yeah, just to be able to play with the horses and, and still have the involvement in the fruit and vegetable industry, um, it just that fills my time. And then a couple of little pet projects on the side, which, uh, yeah, makes life pretty good. Well, Peter, thank you for your uh, time and uh, the opportunity to uh, reconnect with you and explore the Peter tie that is and that many people see and uh, perhaps don't see. I'm delighted on behalf of so many to be able to listen. I could listen to many of these stories most of the day. So so we celebrate you and the achievements and your commitments, your dedication to hard work and the ongoing uh, commitment to others. And uh, thanks for giving the joy to so many um, through Winks and... Uh, Obviously, in your own life, the way you live it, um, your um, humbleness and uh, your commitment to other people shines through. So thank you, Peter, for um, your commitment to participation in EDGE. Uh, thank you. Oh, no worries, Stephen. Thanks very much for uh, having me on, and I hope the story is of some interest to someone somewhere. I'm sure uh, there'll be too many people be uh, interested in this. So thank you, Peter. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown One. Please join us next time for another episode of Edge.